this is Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hello people, Ben here. You're listening to my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks again for joining me for episode 87, which this week features the great South African portrait specialist Gillian Edelstein. The usual spiel before I introduce Gillian properly. Uh, First and foremost, a word about this episode's sponsor, the ever-marvellous Charcoal Book Club, which you should be aware by now is the world's first book of the month club dedicated exclusively to photo books. Each month, Charcoal works with the most respected photographers and publishers in the industry to send hand-picked books directly to your door. Whether you're a professional artist or a photographer with a stock library or a novice who's just beginning to build their collection, Charcoal Book Club is an easy and affordable way to stay up to date on the most essential work in contemporary photography. The club offers free shipping to the UK, Canada and the US and members get exclusive perks such as signed copies, access to rare titles, members-only pricing in their online bookstore and more. They just announced the latest book of the month for September, which is Half Story, Half Life by Raymond Meeks. So if you want to check that out, go to charcoalbookclub.com. I will simply wait excitedly for it to arrive on my doormat because I'm a, a member, you see. That's what you've got to realise. Charcoal are extending a very special introductory offer exclusively to small voice listeners. When you sign up, any photo book of your choice from their library for free, go to charcoalbookclub.com club.com and use a special code a small voice when you sign up to receive your free book for the latest and greatest photo books delivered to your door with free shipping and no hassles check out the charcoalbookclub.com where they are on a mission to inform the mind and inspire the soul as am i if you enjoy this podcast and you think it's worth the price of a cup of coffee per episode, then please do sign up for a small recurring monthly subscription, or if you prefer, make a larger occasional donation at bensmithphoto.com slash a small voice. Do please leave a positive review on iTunes so that others may find out about it, and if you should happen to be in need of a new website, because your current one is not terribly brilliant, uh, but you don't really want to sort that out yourself, um, I will happily do that for you using the Squarespace platform for a very competitive rate. And here endeth the spiel. So Gillian Edelstein grew up in Cape Town, South Africa, and began her photographic career learning the ropes by assisting, before becoming a newspaper press photographer in Johannesburg, after which she moved to London to attend the London College of Printing's photojournalism course. And it was while she was still studying that she began getting commissions from the Sunday Times. Her portraits have appeared internationally in just about every major publication you can name, including The New Yorker, The New York Times, FT Weekend Magazine, Vanity Fair, Interview Vogue, Port, Guardian Weekend, Sunday Times Magazine, Time, Fortune, Forbes, GQ and Esquire, etc. You get the picture. Her photographs have been exhibited internationally, including in the National Portrait Gallery, the Photographer's Gallery, the Royal Academy, Oxo Gallery in London, Sotheby's and in Arles, among others. Gillian has received several awards, including the Kodak UK Young Photographer of the Year, Photographer's Gallery Portrait Photographer of the Year Award, the Visa Door at the International Festival of Photojournalism Perpignan, the John Cobell Book Award. And her work has been included in the Taylor Wessing Portrait Award twice, included in the World Press Awards twice, and she was a finalist in the 2017 Lens Culture Portrait Awards. She has also judged the World Press Awards in 2014 and the Taylor Wessing Awards in 2010. 
Between 1996 and 2002, Gillian returned to South Africa frequently to document the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Her resulting award-winning book, Truth and Lies, shot in large format, was published by Granta, The New Press and Mail and The Guardian in 2002. And she's currently working on several photographic projects and a documentary film about the screenwriter Norman Wexler. This was great. Here's Gillian. So now you've piqued my uh, curiosity. So do you want to start by telling us a little bit about this film, which is obviously... Do you think it's uh, good to start with it? Why not? What, are you going to police the... <laughs> you going to police no, no, the... No, not I'm at kidding, all. I'm kidding. Not at all. I'm just thinking, like, because people are tuning in expecting to hear about photography. Photography, of course But you're going, to wing, you're going to work it so that it doesn't seem completely like... <laughs> I, I just go with it, man. I don't mind. I, all right, okay. Okay. No, 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 I mean, no. You're right. I, I, t- I totally, I totally, you know, it's like, you could, you, unless you, you'd address it like... Uh, well, sometimes my first question is, what are you up to? Okay. And then people tell me what they're up to. But it could be that we um, go on in a more chronological... This is all going to go on the podcast, you know that, don't you? I'm not going to edit this out. This is actually, we have started. Have we? Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> so you want to know uh, what I'm up to? You could, you could start by telling me what you're up to. I'll tell you what I'll start with. Do you, do you still get a kind of fairly kind of consistent stream of editorial commissions? even in this day and age? Sadly, not. No. And I, if I was being honest, it, it makes me quite... Um, yeah, I miss it. I mm. miss it terribly. I, 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 you know, in the last um, couple of weeks, I've done kind of Grace and Perry for a French magazine and an actress who I hadn't come across, an um, American actress for an American magazine, but they are less than regular work and it seems to me um uh, there that you have to be very in with the photo editors and not that I'm not I think that um I've begun to sort of feel photography is a bit of a kind of ageist you know there's a lot of people checking in in terms of new people needing to come in yeah that's, that's how very I see true. it yeah it's a difficult one isn't it because you've you've got the advantage of a huge amount of experience and, and a yeah. certain profile, but you've also got the disadvantage of not being young and sexy anymore. And you frankly, don't think that, then. Well, I, <laughs> I, I personally think you are, of course. But um, in terms of the industry, that, that need or that desire for young blood seems to be, you know, is obviously a disadvantage to those of us who, um, you know, have been around a long time. And that is a, that is a difficult thing. How do you sort of, how do you come to terms with all that? I mean, presume, I presume you, uh, you know, find other outlets. I do. And it's not like that I stop working. I'm working al- almost all the time. And what, what I'm working on is finishing projects, working on projects, new projects, or initiating, um, yeah, new work. What I'm working on at the moment is... Um, I've just booked a ticket to Detroit because I have to go and f- work on filming an interview for this documentary that I've been working on for the past on and off in the it's like a back on the back burner for the past five or five year, or years or so it's a it's and it's not far from because everything I think comes from the biography doesn't it um I met a 
So in short, I would say it's a portrait, a portrait of a man. It's a man who wrote Saturday Night Fever, Serpico, Susan Sarandon's first film called Joe. He was Academy Award nominated twice, but he was afflicted by by, by his bipolar condition. The fact that he achieved what he did, considering it, is a miracle, really. Mm. And his, and name, I, his, name? his name was Norman Wexler, yeah. and I had come to meet him through his on-off muse and a partner and um in new york and he'd I'd, he'd come to london and i'd met him here and um i had opt- optioned a screenplay when he died after 1999 and for quite a long time i think i tried to ha- i was have of the firm belief that i could then go and make a feature film this is uh, her who'd written the screenplay not she him. had written the screenplay and it was mm. about their lives um which was erratic and crazy to say the least. Um, and what happened is in a moment, and this is why this rolls into um, this conversation, is at a moment when I was unemployed or not having getting the work, um, I was doing some research on Norman and I found an audio um, tape on the, the radio, um, a guy called Bob Zmuda, and I listened to this and it, just blew me away and I suddenly thought wow I could do a documentary and it was probably about five five years ago and I started working on it so um I came to meet and incredible my timing has always luckily been very good so I came to interview um Robert Stigwood before he died I had one of the last interviews with him uh John Avilston who was thrown off the set of Saturday Night Fever and thrown off Serpico. Um, I got the last interview before he died. He died last year. Um, and it's beginning to sound like I give people the kiss of death, <laughs> which I... <laughs> well, you know, these these are all people, you know, who of a certain age, age you know, and, yeah. and you, you, you know, you get, it's just a reality. Yeah. And then I met Frank Serpico. We interviewed him. Mm. And I have probably about... Um, four or five more interviews to go and then um, we're looking for finishing fundings and then Mm. I should be there we have a 47 minute rough cut and I think it's looking good wow so what attracted you initially to the to the screenplay of the actual feature that she'd written was it just something about this guy's life that you thought was fascinating so she had given me plays and things of hers to write and for some reason one time I was in New York and she gave me the screenplay and it was like oh god here's another thing I have to read of Pat Kaufman's and I read the screenplay and I could see the film I mean it was so visual and so exciting to me um, that I then came back to London. I just, I had a friend who had got me in, into a film finance group for some reason, not that I had any financing to to put forward, but it was an interesting group of people. And I came back and said, if I option this film, will you come in with me? And that kind of, I needed somebody to bolster me on it. And that's what happened. Mm. But what's interesting to me is that you weren't, you didn't, think wait a minute I don't I can't make a film you just thought well yeah I probably can make a film what you know that the fact you had that sort of sense of uh uh, self-confidence I suppose where does that come from have you always had that it do you know I don't think it's anything to do with confidence I think it's to do with drive and motivation and passion and not being able to harness myself in that if there's something 
and that I think I can do. I feel I've got to go ahead and do it. And I remember a very long time ago when I was at university, my mother said, you know, what you should be doing is going into film. That's the new metier. And we're talking a while ago. And I was absolutely not. I was as as determined I am. I'm also kind of very dogged and dog and stubborn. And I was, no, I've fallen for photography. Mm. I love it. The magic of the dark room and going in there and see the prints come out of the, the chemicals. And so I had no thought of it. So when it came back into this kind of idea, it was fairly surprising. Mm. And then I think it is that thing that you take an idea and you just go for it. For example, in Norman's life, there was a moment where he had stipulated that he had... Um, been involved with certain kind of um, possibly the FBI and I found myself um, writing to the FBI so we mm. we have some very interesting wow. um, stuff to include in this film so he managed somehow to have really quite a successful career uh, mm. and and was a good fi- I mean made great movies those are good movies he made they're not kind of you know they're not n- non-movies they're, they're famous f- films uh, the, f- the films of the 70s yeah the- yeah, uh, still. But he managed to somehow do this despite being, you know, sort of handicapped by uh, a serious mental illness. And a serious one. Yeah. And we're talking off the scale. Wow. And he really um, caused a lot of grief and pain for his family and yeah, the I people close to him. And very interestingly, sometimes he would approach people um, only when he was high and other people when he was completely level-headed. Mm. Like I met him and I found him utterly charming and thought, I, I know this man. So it's very interesting that these years later I'm still yeah. um, pushing for this project to uh, appear. And when I met um, this, play, this playwright, novelist, lecturer, David Scott Milton in LA, and he's now close to 90, I think, and he said to me, you know, I've written another novel and I really hope I don't have to go through the hell of production again, you know. And you think at 90 that still, you know, things don't come easy. No, right. You have to push yeah. and push. Yeah, no, that's a push. very good point. I'm, you know, I'm crowdfunding a book. It's been, it's uh, these incredible publishers called Unbound. Um, the book is called Here and There, The Search for Great Aunt Minna. Um and, it, well, it's work that I've been working on it for as long as I've worked on this documentary. Mm. And I I know I've heard people say, oh, you know, she did Truth and Lies and that's all she's been good for. But honestly, I've... No one's never, ever said that. Come yeah, on. I've had it said to me. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's not very nice or very polite or even in the least bit true. I mean, you know, lot, some photographers go through their whole career without without um, ever really making a book. Um, you know, not, I guess not everyone wants to, but but um, you've got a, a huge, huge archive of, of amazing pictures to, you know, uh, as your kind of legacy. Um, but, yeah, I want to talk to you about that project very much. Um I, I, in in answer to that, I would say that what I've done is I've I began working on projects and stories and narrative, and I've I continued to do so, and I'm sure that many of the photographers you've spoken to have say the same thing. It's the thing that drives me, and it's it's the biography, isn't it? Mm. As well, one's yeah story, one's own story. Yeah, 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, this 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 story that you're talking about, this book project, is a family story. It's a very mm-hmm. story. It's very close to home. So maybe you could explain, kind of briefly, what what the story is and how it how it came about, really. Well, when I finished um, my book, Truth and Lies, which is about the stories of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in yeah, South Africa. which that we was, also we will can, get to. And it was a five-year five piece of work, including a lot of text, which, which I worked on as well. The, I had a call from a journalist called Nicola Graydon who said, I'm, I'm in South Africa, I'm doing this story about these shamans, Sangoma, they're traditional healers, and I'm looking for a photographer. Can you suggest somebody? And I went, why not me? And then there was a question of money. I rang the Sunday Times magazine. I spoke to the editor then, who was a guy called Robin Morgan, who said, okay, well, we'll do it, but only if you come back with Edward Curtis-type pictures. <laughs> I was like, mean? oh, God. Um, but at that time, I was working on large format, and I was working on Polaroid, and you could um, pre nine eleven, you could you could you could get on an aeroplane, you know, with buckets of water sloshing about, you <laughs> yeah. know. If they, I guess if there were internal flights, that kind of thing. Um, so I thought, okay, I will f- fulfil your brief if that's what you want. And um, the Sangoma, these particular people, I will get. I am getting to this my story. No, that's fine. Um, they were they are. Um, called the Sangoma and they're called by their ancestors to heal and if they don't follow this calling if they don't heed the calling then bad things start to happen and um, I remember feeling completely cynical about this as I entered this valley and I remember there 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 were rocks and there were these sacrificial things being left on the rocks and little notes and I was completely like this is just you know I wasn't really believing of it. And also the stories are very hard because they're oral, it's an oral tradition and it's very hard to find, um, you know, textbook information on them. But at the same time, there was a family gathering in Cape Town, which is where I grew up, and I was interested in, of an age, and I was kind of interested because a photograph emerged, which was of my great aunts on my father's side, dressed in this beautiful European finery. And behind them were about 14 trophy buckheads. And I thought, that's, that's my story. I don't really understand it yet. Eastern Europe meets Africa. Mm. Eastern Europe, genealogy, generations meeting Africa, but it wasn't, you know, generations going back. It was of in the early 1900s. So I, and then I, there was an uncle of mine who had started a family tree and was looking. What he discovered was there was this lost branch of the family I'd never heard of, and he said, "Yes, well, you, because before I was born, my paternal grandmother and grandfather had died, so I never met them, mm. and my father." had gone silent in his in my parents' marriage and didn't talk very much about his parents. But I did know that he, my grandfather, had two brothers. So there were three brothers. What I didn't know till the, I was the tender age of 40 was that there'd been a, a sister. But what had happened is 
the three brothers had left Latvia because they were escaping the draft. They were being drafted by the Russians. There was a lot of anti-Semitism. And they left to forge, you know, to find a new life. And the sister was left in Latvia. And one day, those local policemen came into the village, tiny village, and stood at the pulpit and said, you have 24 hours to leave your homes. And if you don't, you'll be taken into the forest and shot. And that's it. And I later found this diary. Liz Joby was helping me edit it. We found this diary, which explained this pandemonium as people started gathering up their possessions and what they could take. And I went to this village and found this house, which was the biggest house. My my grandfather's house was the biggest house in the village. The first gramophone had sort of sat on the sash of the window and people had come around and there were stories about them being um, trading horses, fattening them up and feeding them, selling them back to the czar. And they were quite kind of kind of gangster type, mm. but the but quite um, feisty in the village. And this diary told the story of this chaos and pandemonium as people had to leave and what they would take and how they were trying to hide things. And, and when I ended up in Lesvos in 2015 and 2016 again, and I was watching the boats come in, I just, it felt like, wow, you know, this is how history repeats. Mm, you're talking about the refugee crisis. The yeah, refugee and... crisis, yeah. Wow. And so, so I then thought, well, yes, I could do this family story, but I could um, bookend it with the, with the refugee crisis because I had gone to Calais, I'd gone to Lesos, and I like writing, so I'd been writing diary pieces as well. And I thought it would make sense mm. then and make it more current and contemporary and um, and. Honestly, I need to sort of go back and do some more images in 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 those areas as well, in back in the Greek islands and things. Right, because I guess the challenge of doing that kind of historical story is, what do you photograph? How did you sort of okay. face that challenge? So I went. Um, I'm sorry, I've left. The, so what happened is this aunt of mine. Her name was Great Aunt Minna. She, I mean, I called her that. Her name was Minna. And they went looking for a home, and they ended up in Belarus and Siberia. And they went down to the Black Sea, and then the, they were pushed back by the Red Army. And they ended up in Ukraine as scientists, and um, they were then um, evacuated during the Second World War. So there were two occasions where they would have been shot and killed. If they'd have gone back to Latvia... They would have been killed by the Nazis if they'd not been evacuated in the Second World War to Uzbekistan because, um, because the one was a, they were scientists. They would have been killed as well because most of the Jews in Dnieprop—it's called Dniepro now—in um, Ukraine, which is where they landed up. Most of the there were three hundred thousand or something Jews that were slaughtered. Um, so I then made contact with the descendants of Minna. And there is a man called Victor who lives in Dniepro to this day. And I went and visited him in about, um, at about this time when I started, finished Truth and Lies and worked on the Sangoma. So I went and I thought I could make a film. So I made, I started, I arrived then, was filming. And then I came back and the BBC had started that series called Who Do You Think You Are? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought, oh, well, I'm 
not a kind of famous celebrity, it's not going to happen. So I stopped work. Just stopped. So when I started working on the book, I took stills from the films. And then recently I decided to go back. So I arranged um, to go back to Nepo and I, I went, I was there in June. It's about two hours from Donetsk. Mm. And I did a six hour road journey from Kiev to Dnipro. And I had this idea to kind of take um, symbolic things from Africa back to Dnipro and put them in the landscape. And some of them worked and some didn't. Um, but that that's that's the book that right. I'm crowdfunding. So in a way, it kind of gave, gave you a chance to move away from portraiture, which is kind of whether you uh, like it or not, you've kind of been... Uh, very much I don't know whether you've been pigeonholed but you've very much been a portrait photographer but I know that you you have a a sort of love of of documentary in general you know so this gave you a chance in a way to move away <clears throat> two things uh, I started the, in documentary I would say and there's the question of earning a living and I th- I think I, I mean I Right in the beginning of my career, I then had started working in a community called Cork Bay, which was um, in the apartheid South Africa. It was the suspended, they, they, the, the community was a fishing community, and my mother and her lover were living there. And um, I would go, and I was fascinated by it because it was like a pocket of a multiracial community, the only one existing in South Africa. And the reason it existed, and they had to let them be, was because they needed these men to go and fish. Wow. So they had to go out at four o'clock, and there was no infrastructure of a public transport system from the townships of Kyalicha and the new townships coming up um, on the most southern point of Africa you know, um, in this place now. It was just very sort of popular with tourists. And I would go and I'd um, hang with the fishermen and I'd be in the local community, which by all intents and person purposes, they would have called a township, but it wasn't. It was completely integrated into the white community, which was an unheard of. Yeah, so that was a kind of unique experience. In yes, a way. and I, so I, it was my very first work, and um, I felt it was ready to be exhibited, and I was vetoed. Um, it, I, um, Carol Hacker was at the Market Theatre Gallery and said, "I'll give you an exhibition," and um, that's sa- in South Africa. Yeah, yeah. and sadly, um, I mean, I have the greatest respect the greatest respect for David Goldblatt, but he thought that I was, I needed to, I was a little bit green and needed to kind of work a bit more. I can understand it. What was his yeah. role then? He, he was a sort he was, of... He was, he worked on the, on the board, I think, of the, for ah, the market gallery. Yeah. Because he was quite, at that point, he'd already done a number of his books on the mines and he'd been a, you know, somebody who'd been an inspiration. So he thought you weren't ready or something. You so were only he thought in your twenties re- or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, which then led me into um, press photography. But that's how. So I won m- my first awards were in press photography. Mm. One was a, a rapist <laughs> um, man coming towards me with his fly undone and a brick in his hand um, at when he, where he was meant to be appearing at court. And the next one was um, 
this fire that happened as I was there interviewing the man who organized the show and the place started burning right. down in front of me and it got into world press and that was you know those mm. were early days for me yeah and but you was, had a sort of traditional newspaper photographer kind of uh, training in a way apprenticeship if you like yeah and and it wasn't easy because there weren't very many women and my byline often came up as Julian. Um, I remember one of the photo editors saying to me, "What's the matter, lovey? Have you got a pe- have you got your period?" Oh God! I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, those those, those kind of stories must be um, prevalent. I, I imagine. And but 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 this this his, this guy was incredible because he. He, in one way, he was really incredible. He didn't kind of go, oh, because she's a woman, I'm not going to send it. So she, he would send me into pretty scary situations, you know. Right. So you kind of got both sides of the coin in Absolutely. one person there. Absolutely. It was like, I always said it was like kind of almost some kind of military training. I mean, mm. And also I was quite, um, he'd send me to a kind of um, a protest of the right wing Terre Blanche, where once I got almost thrown to the ground because I'd be I'd be so angry about the whole situation there if it was a military parade of the kind of local South African people showing their strength or the you know white supremacist guys in the AWB like Terre Blanche that I'd get myself in trouble. Sometimes I'd do this thing where you you're wearing red today and I would go dressed only in red. I went through a phase of doing that. And then this particular one time I got smashed to the ground at this um, meeting. Mm. I mean, there's, there's so many different threads that we've we've kind of uh, we've kind of introduced here. And it's hard to know where where to go. But this experience of growing up in in apartheid South Africa. I mean, so you you had a very sort of liberal mm. kind of white experience, whereby the kind of racism that was utterly you know normal uh, wasn't accepted as okay. No, and um, right from the start, I mean, my one of my earliest memories, um, everybody had servants, and I, of my parents hiding, my favourite, um, she was the woman who I used to ride on her back, and her name was Gertie, and she had this wonderful partner called Ben, and my parents hiding them, because the police were coming around looking for what they called the dom, dompas, which was the, you know, their papers to say they were mm. legal, and this panic. As well as the fact that um, my mother was the chief medical social worker at Hrusiskio Hospital. You know, it's famous for the first heart transplant. It did Chris oh, Barnard. Yeah. It did rather amazing things. And she was very involved in kind of interesting research. But also she was working in townships. And before District 6, which was demolished, I remember going into District 6 with her. I remember going to Simonstown where people were, you know, it was the Group Areas Act. They'd throw black coloured Indian Asian people out um, on the basis of their colour of their skin. And that had a profound effect on me. And I think I've always said it. That you had to have been an Aust- you know, like an ostrich with your head in the sand if you couldn't see what was going yeah. on. So from an early age, and even at school, you know, high school, I used to hand out um, pamphlets. Um, go to the local railway station, hand out pamphlets saying "Know your pass," and um, trying and slow and very 
very early on was trying to affect some kind of help change mm. anything that could shift and so i think i've heard you say that you know the camera was kind of a weapon or you mm. didn't have the courage mm. to pick up an actual weapon but the camera was mm. the kind of next best thing was that partly what inspired you to want to take pictures then that kind of i think it was a kind of syn- syn- is it synergy synchron- synchronicity that what happened is out on the university campus there was i joined um the a group i was the only woman and of course i was this i looked at the photograph not that long ago i was the secretary <laughs> and it was the film and television and photographic society and there was a dark room and i remember going home and saying to my mother uh i want this camera and um she said surprised me and said I'm not buying it for you and I went into my bank account and the amount that I had in the bank account was exactly enough for me to afford this camera and it was so it was that and it was the dark room that I found so magical and I, I think lots of people say that so it's um and it was this thing that I it you it gave me this tool where I could go and talk to people and so I started in tattoo parlors, in District 6 when it had been demolished, um, in Woodstock, because I'd, I'd graduated as a social worker. And, and in fact, I remember my, it was particularly my mother saying, you're a linguist, rather do languages, rather do... do yeah, I know. I remember, no, I heard you saying that you know your mum had sort of said that it was a pipe dream or something about yeah. photography, and and you know it interested me. It kind of goes back to what you alluded to earlier, which was you weren't put off by that. I mean, some people would be really kind of destroyed by by a parent being so negative about the thing that they wanted to do, but you you didn't have that reaction. You were in a way more determined to prove your commitment or something, maybe. It just fueled my dr- desire and drive. And I, um, when I finished university, I, I took a year off just to travel in in mainly in Europe, actually. And I, I was it was it was me and my camera. And I took lots of photographs and came back saying, you know, that's what I wanted to do. And m- my parents then said, well, what you need to do is do what you what you were trained to do so you need to go into uh, social work and the first job I got was in district six that had been demolished by the South African government and um, my clients were ex-offenders it was called the National Institute for the Crime and Rehabilitation of Offenders and by going out and having to kind of do these case studies it just felt like I was what all I was doing was kind of propping up the already you know horrible status quo and so I just used to take photographs of them so I photographed them Mm. wherever I could on you know in any spare time and by the end of that year I there was no going back yeah so then you had this kind of newspaper experience when did the portraiture thing really kick in because you came to London uh, and what what sort of brought you here? So, just going back to South Africa before yeah. I started on the newspaper, I assisted. I assisted. He was a, a guy from Manchester. He was a commercial photographer, and I assisted a fashion photographer. So I assisted for about two, something like two years. And at that time, what I was learning about 
was studio lighting, medium format cameras, loading um, and processing film in the darkroom, and doing a lot of production. And um, and it was it was at the end of the newspaper um, time and feeling very itchy footed and wanting to leave South Africa. This is just as the state of emergency was declared, the first state of emergency, the, the end of 84, I had applied to the London College of Communications. It was then the London College of Printing they, and discovered they were doing this new photojournalism course. And I applied and got in for it to, um, and, and came to, to... That was what I was coming to do. Right, right. Um, I, Interesting. I, I probably got there because I... I I, I knew Michael Hoppen, who'd gone to the college. And, um, yeah, I mean, this is pre-social media or email yeah. or anything. So, I mean, I have my letter of acceptance, you know. Yeah. Um, and um, But that must have felt like quite a, quite an adventure to come, you know, so far to do something like that. But you'd already done a bit of travelling in Europe. I'd so. spent a year in America as right. a Rotary Exchange student, and I'd been in Europe for a year. Um so I, um, yeah, I mean, I, whatever happened, I still kind of was the the quintessential feeling homesick and things like that. But while I was at LCC, um, the photo editor of the Sunday Times came and looked. I had printed for hours. I'd printed in the darkroom a portfolio before I left because I think I had a secret game plan and the plan was that I was going to look for work and see how this course went and I never ever pulled out of anything the course was great mm. but well I did I did it but much later did you yeah but you you yeah so but when you say secret you mean it was sort of uh, subconscious uh, subconscious I was I was preparing maybe I was preparing to leave and so I printed up this portfolio and I remember Michael Cranmer looking at it and saying what are you doing here what what the hell are you doing here so I said, oh, I'm just, you know, learning about it. I mean, I'd been working, I'd, you know, I'd already spent um, three or four, three years, four years, three years as a press photographer. Mm. Yeah, so you'd really cut your teeth. And I was going to ask you about where you learned about lighting, all that kind of stuff. So you'd already plus had I'd that already, experience. yeah. So you'd had really quite a, quite a breadth of experience by then. I worked with this um, photographer who was obsessed with Albert Watson's lighting. So we used to, we used to make little cubes and then, and then put the lighting in and, and bounce it at every angle. And there were, you know, he he found two supermodels at that time, and um, and he was really brilliant. He was brilliant. So and that was all, a really it, it, it was a really useful good, apprenticeship. Very yeah. much. So what happened is when I um, and then the Sunday Times, I got this. He said, "I'm offering you uh, some freelance work." And what happened is that Andrew Neal saw this photograph of mine because. At Gray's Inn Road. He was the, the editor of the Sunday Times. He was Times. the editor. They used to put, you know, picture of the week or whatever. And I had gone to photograph Lord Lou Grade. Um, he was a film producer, Michael Grade's father. And um, I think in this photograph, you can actually see my lens on his desk. But he's looking very surprised and, you know, almost like he's got a big cigar in his mouth and, and he's like, his eyes are wide open. And um, I remember coming back to the darkroom at the Sunday Times and they got a call saying, oh, you've left your lens there. And then I found, I still have the card, I think, from Lou Grade, where it says, you obviously wanted to come back. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But because of that, and Andrew Neil loved that photograph, and because of that, I was offered a contract. But then, whopping happened. Um, right, will you better explain what that's about for the younger listeners? For the younger listeners. So whopping was when 5,500 print workers were dismissed because of the digital era. And so Grayson Road, where the old printing presses had been, um, were going to be moved off to um, Canary, yeah, to, yeah. to Wapping. And the interesting thing is at that time, none of the photographers, journalists, anybody had actually gone to what it was then referred to as the plant. And um, I, I remember going down with a journalist before the move and going there and seeing, I mean, they were prepared, you know, for this craziness. There was barbed wire and the picket fences. And, um, and of course, what happened then is NUJ and um, yeah. the Mar- they all, anybody could, would come. And it got very violent. Yeah, it was, it was essentially a sort of, uh, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, an industrial dispute. But it became exactly. very political and it was, a ma- it was a massive deal. It was, it was a kind of real political kind of hot potato in a way. Very much Police on horse, ho- big horses, and people getting hurt. But and you, that led you to what? Quit on principle, I, essentially. It was twofold. Um, it felt like I remember the Sunday Times saying, "You know, come on, you can throw your film over the fence. You can." Um, Let's find a way. And I disappeared at that point back to South Africa to photograph during the state of emergency. It felt like there was there wasn't any kind of um, the, there was no picket line for me. You know, it was just everything was blurring into this rather kind of tough, crazy mess. And from from South Africa, I mean, I remember being pulled out of Kailicha with. Guy Tillam under gunpoint because we were in in a in an area where we wouldn't we weren't weren't meant to be, um, and then I'm coming back here and the, I think I may have crossed a picket line once just to talk to um, the my and I then announced that and not only that um, there were people who were feeling that anybody going crossing picket lines was really not a cool thing mm. and. Um, so it was a mix of principle, a mix of feeling this was not the right thing. And I had to literally walk away from my ultimate, you know, dream job. Yeah, exactly. You kind of, yeah, you, you had you had a, a, a phenomenally had, kind of, uh, like you say, almost a, an idyllic kind of scenario whereby mm. you mm. quit your course because mm. you wanted to, you, you were actually in a position to start working, which is, mm. you know, a kind of scenario that not many people would find themselves in. But then you had to kind of, you had to sort of throw it away in a way, or, or we had to at least uh, suspend that activity. I remember when I was coming here the first time, or I was leaving, um, coming to London, and I remember Peter Jordan, the time photographer, who'd done that amazing photograph of Steve Biko and his, when he, you know, he'd, been killed by the South African security police. And I remember Peter talking to me, he was employed by Time magazine. So to get that job was just kind of, it was just almost beyond my wildest dreams. So it was a very hard thing. Um, But I'm, I think, you know, every survival instinct came into play after that. And so 
I must have done this thing of then going, right, what else can I, can I do? And what had happened in the Sunday Times was that um, I was being sent off to do lots of portraits. I was being sent, you know, could you go and photograph Terry Jones? Can you go and photograph mm. Gerard Depardieu? There were all these amazing commissions. And I then thought, well, I think I'm going to buy a medium format camera and I'm going to buy a little light. And that's how it started. Right. And um, so the, 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 the studio experience suddenly kicked in and it was part of that survival thing. Um, because soon after I left the Sunday Times, the Observer kind of offered me work. But it almost felt like, you know how people go from the BBC to ITV? It's mm. like this, you're not quite comfortable. Well, you felt disloyal or something slightly. It wasn't that. It was just that I think they they probably felt it just wasn't, it didn't quite work or right. gelled. And, and then, so I then had to go out and start as any freelancer and start yeah. looking for work. And, and And that's how I built up a portfolio because... I would get, I got work on Time Out and um, the Robert Maxwell paper had started, The Correspondent, all these publications that yeah. no longer exist. And The Independent uh, at some and point, And The Independent. But you already had a, had a pretty amazing folio full of proper celebs and that gives you a certain amount of kudos or a certain amount of credibility, I suppose, when you're showing the work to people because it, it demonstrates that you've already been out there doing it. Well, that only happened after I left. The, you know, it mm. was yes, and I but I had to build it up quite slowly. I had that original portfolio, but then it was new work, and and it had to look different, and um, and so I pushed myself very hard on that on that level, and to kind of somehow have the images jump out and. And, and and then and then I created this next project, which was the um, Affinities project, which was um, because after I left the Sunday Times, I met somebody and we lived together. He had been a journalist on the Sunday Times, and when that relationship ended, um, I had sort of lost my surrogate family, and I was looking around at who my friends were and the people, because, you know, not having been at school here or high school, you don't have that, you don't have that foundation. And the people that I was becoming friendly with were people that I'd been photographing. And so I thought, well, why don't I create this project, which is about mm. people who are kind of meet because of work and form a kind of collaborative duo type situation. And that, worked as well because I sold the idea to um, the Telegraph magazine and they had they had um, Snowden as a retained photographer and Nigel Horn who was then the editor said okay I'll tell you what I'll give you I'll give you a contract we'll do it let's do it for 18 months so they put which you know to get that today is really hard yeah that would be so, unheard of I think unheard of so I took the you know I, so I I I worked here, I took the project to New York, I did loads of... So it was basically, just to kind of clarify for people, it was a, it was a project whereby you took people who um, had a kind of close relationship yeah. of some description, for a friendship or a working collaboration or whatever, and you photographed them as, as pairs. Mm. Yeah. Uh, but also you were becoming yourself friends with some of these people. Was it in the aftermath of this relationship breakdown? Didn't yes. you start drinking too much and that kind of thing? Well, I thought yeah, I heard you, heard you say at some point. <laughs> 
<laughs> did I say that? I probably did. Um, I don't know. I got. I got. I. I know you can never get too rich or too thin. They say I got both thin and possibly from lots of work. A little richer. A little rich. Mm. Um, but what I, that's of, all I did. I just worked. How did you develop? You know, what did you? You were saying you worked at it in a way. But how does how did you go about kind of developing a style, or did you have any kind of guidelines for yourself that you still maybe even retain today when it comes to approaching a portrait? I mean, I think for myself, I've never, and I I castigate myself for this sometimes about not being formulaic, so that I'm very much um, in try and be in tune with the person that I'm photographing and kind of generate some kind of integrity and some kind of truth. Um, and because I'm of the firm belief that if you push somebody to do something they don't want to do, it's never, it's just not going to work. Mm. I, I, yes, I mean, if you look at, I suppose, um, people who have been criticised for their work and, and admired, you know, you can push people to do kind of, crazy difficult things um i've not been of that i think i i want to be surprised i want to capture a moment that kind of somehow creates some kind of connectivity even either the connectivity is with me or it's with each other and it was sometimes very hard at that time to do these duos because i was i often felt like the in the menage a trois but i was the un, the, the person who wasn't i was the you the voyeur in a way yeah the voyeur. exactly so yeah maybe you could give us a, one or two examples of of particular shoots that stay in your mind i mean not necessarily for the affinities project but just portraits in general of some of the m many celebs that you because you have photographed basically everybody i like to say sometimes about various people you're one of the various people like to say that about um were there any you can remember that stick in your mind either things that where you had to maybe snatch victory from the jaws of defeat you know with with a subject that was difficult or with a scenario that was you know more, more difficult than you'd normally expect um probably because it's most recently I wrote and because I just love his latest film Black Klansman I, I'm thinking of Spike Lee oh yeah tell us that one and um I I mean I hadn't processed 120 film for quite a while and I went to um, and it was at the time where I would literally go out with one light and my 35mm camera, but I also had my 120. And this time I thought, right, I'm going to shoot on this Hasselblad. And Spike Lee was at this hotel. I photographed him. We had a rather, he'd just, at the beginning of his career, he just, um, the film She's Got to Have It had just come out. And I went back to, I, had, I, I was hiring a darkroom in West London. I went back to the darkroom loaded the film and clearly I'd made a complete cock up and the film came out and it was all stuck together and oh god and it's I remember such a horrible feeling such a horrible feeling and I and I can tell you of a number of images that are kind of burned onto my brain that I thought were on the you know I'd caught and they weren't there you know back of the film and they're not there but this was one of them and I remember I'd just bought a little mini coupe or something at dashed back to this hotel and sat and just waited and thought I've got to I've got to do got to, I can't come back with this out this image and I waited and waited finally he came back it was dark black <laughs> <laughs> and 
He said, uh, we went out, he said, he was still wearing this kind of hoodie. Hoodies weren't he? So you just sort of cost, accosted him in the lobby or something? Lost, exactly what I did. Yeah. I said, oh, you've got to help me. And was me. he grumpy about it? Very. Incredibly grumpy. And we stood on this balcony and he said, okay, man, this is the pot. <laughs> and he just stood there and I can I mean he folded his arms in that kind of yeah. like, holding it close to his body like I'm so furious about this and I don't know if you consider that snatching it from the jaws of defeat but it uh, yeah was, no I, I think I do because the fact that you you know you you were determined to to uh you know somehow get something out of it you know and that you went back you didn't just kind of have a massive uh, meltdown and, and then just tell him that it wasn't you know that it had gone wrong yeah I mean yeah you you, you did it you did but I and I have experiences where that hasn't happened for example I remember being commissioned I was on a film set in right way out in East London and, at, and then I was told oh no please can you go and photograph Paloma Picasso at um at the Ritz I think she was at the Ritz at Claridge's Hotel. And um, I didn't trust anybody, control freak person, probably, and went, took the film and, and, and went to, yeah, this was the idea. This was the other way around. I Paloma Picasso, and then I had to go onto this film set. And I went back to the to, to do this photograph of her. And um, she, I remember she was looking this incredibly kind of vamping against this wall and looking rather glamorous and sexy and beautiful. And I can still see that image. I can see the, the wall behind the color of the paint of the wall. I went back to the darkroom and said to my friend who was I was sharing the darkroom, I've got to go onto the set. So I obviously wasn't that control freaky since then and said, would you process this film? And he processed it in Fixer. Oh, no way. Yeah. Oh, no. So I still see that image, but I don't have it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, you, 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 now in the digital age, you don't have the same risks, I suppose. But how have you, because I know but, you, you've transitioned mainly, or you still got a foot in both camps I with the digital. I totally and do. And I, and I have to say, you, you know, it's in a way... There are many, many, many good experiences and the bad ones are the ones you, they're almost, they're just easier to talk about because they're kind of so far and few between really. And mm. I did have an unfortunate experience. Um, I took my father on a road trip before he died, part of this book, the, um, Here and There. And I took him back to his birthplace, which is in the, near the Lesotho border. And I decided I would shoot film. I hardly backed up on digital. In fact, I think I, the, the most I backed up on was an iPhone camera. And I didn't realize, and this has never happened to me before, but I didn't realize that my lens, my 50mm lens on the Hasselblad was faulty. So I lost a lot of film. Mm. And, that, um, and that is the thing. And it kind of um, put, sows a seed of doubt in terms of film. But, but... The results still stagger me always on film. Yeah, you still think that you get something with so, film. Absolutely. That's kind of intangible in a way. Difficult to pin down. Difficult. I don't think it, it honestly, and I think that, and it's that other thing of it slowing you down. Hmm. Vim Vendors talked on the radio the other day about um, 
he thought photography was very good place, but how good a place was it? There was so much of it. Don't know if you saw that. No, and, I know he um, takes. I know he takes photographs. And as then well he, as he said, "Can you please all help me? I'm looking for a word." He said, "To explain what is with this outpouring of photography." And they said, "You know, it was, it, I th- I thought you could call it photo flatulence. You know, that it just it's like a deluge. A deluge. And that's a good word. Yeah. It's a deluge. And I, and the the thing is, you do think." It does slow you down, and it it's that practice, and that it then becomes considered and um, and meaning more meaningful somehow. Yeah, it's not just that it's it's the slowing you down, but it's also the fact you've got to be in some way economical because with digital you can just you know bang away forever in a day, and if you've got a roll of one twenty in the camera you've got you know 12 frames or whatever there's a there's a huge difference there exactly i went to the carnival just on monday and i was with um a relative of mine and um i had my hustle blood and we won the outskirts of near westbourne grove and um there was a young woman and she was doing her makeup on the street and i stopped to photograph her had a 120 lens on and the why i'm telling you the story is because my relative is a therapist studying to be therapist and she kind of so very keyed into people's actions and she said it was very interesting because normally if it had been a, a mobile people would just come in between you and the person and not, but she said that there were crowds passing and she said that people went around because mm. it seemed to them that something important was happening right yes and that was rather lovely to hear um, I was completely unaware of it. Yeah. And um, well, this well, you know, because it's sort of a relatively unusual thing now to see someone with a proper old school camera that that you know it's like that suddenly uh, differentiates you. And people do commented on maybe you know more the fool me for still kind of clinging with a little bit like some creature on you know, um, but I. I do love the results and I do love what and and it's and it's frustrating too because also it's the time you know that you have to get yourself to get it processed and do mm. the printing and do the scanning and do the retouching if you're going you know mm. half of it doing it digitally. Yeah. I mean so, the main barrier is still cost, isn't it? I mean that's yes. that's the great the great attraction of di- digital photography whatever else you want to say about it. Uh, you can't there's no comparison in terms of how much it's going to cost you and if you're young and you're starting out I mean obviously when we started out there was no choice it had to be filmed and you had to find a way of paying for it and paying for your processing but and you know I guess everyone did or does one way or another still loads of young people shooting film probably more than than ever but um Ultimately, it is uh, a costly thing, and and with digital, it costs you naff all basically once you bought the camera. Mm-mm. So, so at what point did the Truth and Lies Reconciliation Commission come come about? Um, maybe you can sort of explain what that is and how how you came to go and shoot there. So, in ninety uh, six, um, my parents, brother, sister, were, they were all still in South Africa. Um, subsequently my mother brother sister have gone to australia my father is no longer in south africa he he died two years ago but i was visiting and um being the kind of very obsessed with news our family have been i was watching these um hearings they used to have a sunday night um television program which was 
called special assignment. And these, I had gone for my sister's wedding. That's right. And I saw these scenes come up of these hearings. And I thought, I just, it was like a completely impossible thing to ignore. It was just, I had to do it. And I came back, I was with network photographers at the time. And I said, uh, I tried to get funding from the Sunday Times. I, I, look, I, that wasn't, I wrote to Desmond Tutu and said, could I be the official photographer? I actually found the letter from him just yesterday where he says, actually, we have appointed somebody, but I'll give you my blessing. And mm. You can come and go as you please. Um, um, Neil Burgess, who was then the director of the of network photographers, wrote to Kathy Ryan, who sent me on the first two trips. And she was on the uh, New York Times. New York Times magazine. magazine. And on that, and the first trip was extraordinary because they decided they were going to do a profile on Nelson Mandela. And so, um, you know, I mean, to have kind of started at that point with that, it was almost like I then had to honor honor it. And, and I then, I spent, um, I think I went in February of 97 and then went again in May, June. And at that time, those, those trips were funded by the New York Times magazine. And because of that, I won the Visa d'Or at Perpignan. Mm. Um, because it was published by the New York Times magazine, it was then impossible for me to stop. But I also had to fund it. I also had a young child. I also didn't have a partner. I did at that point still. (laughs) I had to think about that. Yeah, but um, but I funded it. I couldn't get any extra funding. So I funded it with the portrait work. Yeah, you see, right. That's how I did it. Right, and so you you just sort of set yourself. Um, well, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was, um, we should explain, yeah, um, set up in the aftermath of apartheid. So when Mandela was released from prison and the and the first democratic elections happened in South Africa, the um, new government invited. Uh, victims and perpetrators to come forward either to apply for amnesty or to tell their stories and this it was almost like you know and they had sections called gross violations and um and it was like an outpouring of you know a kind of toxic outpouring and it was criticized too there were lots of people who said you know this is a nonsense you know but mm, i'd say 90 percent 1995 percent of the people that I met in the townships, and I went into many of them during the hearings. And and it was impossible for me. I couldn't be everywhere because they were happening all over the country, almost like kind of kangaroo courts. Um, And and they had, um, um, there were kind of lawyers, there were um, commissioners, there were comforters, people who would stand around and offer you support. Um, and then there were the local community who'd come and listen, and then these, um, and so it was very kind of um, fairly organised, and um, and you know, say they'd be in Nelspruit, and then you know everybody would gather, and you'd hear these stories of mm. people who had died in ghastly situations, um, and so what I thought I would do would create these little um, studios near the hearings and photograph the victims and, 
and perpetrators and so you sort of set yourself up and then just invited people to come and mm. be in uh, front of your camera yeah and i did it over a five-year period i think what i didn't anticipate was that at the end of it i would have to do the text mm. i was pregnant with my second child sometimes i didn't understand if I was nauseous from carrying the baby or nauseous from the hideous things I was reading, oh God, yeah. I virtually moved into the Granta offices with piles, reams of papers. Granta magazine. Through, yeah. Um, Ian Jack was the head of Granta and Liz Joby was the editor and she was doing the edit editing with me. And she was incredible because she encouraged me to write diaries and go back to get context, more context for the book. Mm. And I think that's when I really started enjoying landscape photography. I worked a lot on the large format. And mm. I wanted to ask you about one or two of the particular images that Tutu has got his head on the desk or something. What? what uh, oh, yeah, there it is. What was going on there? So it's an interesting image because... Um, because the night before, I had photographed him before. I'd photographed him in the townships when he was, uh, when I was a press photographer. And then I'd photographed him on my first trip for the New York Times magazine, but I wasn't happy. And uh, I, so I set up another, I said I wanted to come again. And the night before I went, I was with a group of journalists, television journalists, who'd been working on this special assignment program for the South African Broadcasting Corporation that was reeled out every Sunday night. And I said, what do you think the... We had this big conversation about what the quintessential image of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was. And there were two that we... The one was um, a photograph, a, a, a kind of image of this man called Malchas, M-A-L-G-A-S, who had been an ANC veteran and who had, I had photographed with his medals in a wheelchair. He had um, the, the kind of particular torture that he'd had where you kind of waterboarding, but it was like he was, they called it the helicopter med method, where they strung him up and then drowned him, mm. perhaps the same sort of thing. And he wept. Uh, during the hearings, and Tutu had been over presiding over that hearing, and he too had wept. And uh, so these colleagues of mine said, I think that the, that was the quintessential image of the Truth Commission so far, because this was like two years into it. And when I went to photograph Tutu, I told him the story, and he said, you know, I am so very tired that I don't mind if I just put my head on my hands and we do and we so Liz Joby and I kind of thought about it because I wanted it in my book and um, people thought that it, I had constructed it mm. so yes it was constructed but completely and utterly with his blessing and also you could for me it was a portrait it was a portrait the fact that you see his skull cap on the top of his head, you know it's Desmond Tutu, the ring on his hand, head in his hands. So I, I fought it, but I didn't. I didn't. Win I didn't that win battle. that battle. I didn't. So it didn't go in the book. No, but it, but it came from him, and and you know it was like you say, kind mm. of a natural moment. The ANC chaplain that um, you photographed, Lapsley. Um, yeah, he he. Um, so he's you know dressed almost like a, I guess almost like you can imagine a Catholic priest or something. And um, he had his hands blown off. Was it a letter bomb or something? Mm 
Um, so he has hook, had hooks instead of his actual hands. Um, can you just sort of walk us through that one a little bit? He he was an ANC chaplain in Lesotho, and this letter bomb arrived, and yes, his hands were blown off. So he had these prosthetic hooks, and the reason I repeat this is that we came. He called me after this um, shoot because I photographed him on 5-4 and one of the things I also did was I had gone in I had I think that afterwards I had looked at this idea of the hook and the cross right and I had cropped the image which is something I never normally do but I had and the time and time magazine had published that image and he rang me up and he was furious he said don't ever reduce my disability to a disability don't you dare ever do that again. And I took that on board, and I never, ever used the image. I mean, I have the, pic, the print here somewhere, but I got what he was saying. It was his right. He'd suffered enough. Mm. But he was, um, I, think, I think there are many people that I photographed um, who'd gone through terrible, terrible things, uh, bitterness was not something I found a lot. People are remarkable in in their suffering, but I would say that he was there was a, a great anger, um, and it, yeah. for, you know, there's in the same that um, I'm trying to remember. It's, it's Joyce and Tumkulu who had the hair of her son. She her, her son had been fed rat poison. He'd been detained, tortured, fed rat poison, and. Um, his the hair she'd gone to the hospital and the hair of his had come off and that's all she had left of mm. her son. Jesus. And she held it. I remember like and she was angry, very angry. Mm. She held it almost like it was like a black power salute with this hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there's also there, there's one of a guy with a handgun. One of the the white Dokutsir. Yeah, who was the he was the um, part of the place called Flakplas, which was the undercover operation for the South African police. These were the guys that were... These were the henchmen. They were the henchmen. But he was one of the first people to come forward and to say that, you know, we were, we were did very t- bad things. Mm. Um, and um, what had happened is I'd made an appointment to go to him and he... I mean, what was incredible was that there was this, it was in Pretoria, which is where the seat of government is. And I arrived and I remember there was barbed wire and Alsatians barking and, you know, fear. There was a sense of he'd locked himself in, he'd incarcerated himself. And he was serving us these tea, these china cups, cups and saucers and little looking very kind of a little tray. But there was this thing hanging off his strap of his arm. And me being me, I said, you know, what is that thing you're carrying there? Well, I mean, what in God's name made me ask him? He said, it's my gun. I carry it everywhere. He said, even when I go to the toilet. So I said, wow, that's pretty amazing. Can I photograph you with it? And that is the gun, the mm. gun which he's holding close to his head in a look of great, um, well, it's, you know, he's facing me, but there's also, there is fear behind the eyes. Yeah. So 
where do we go next? I always get to this. Well, I, I was going to say the Spike Lee film, this Black Klansman film, is also when you think of white supremacists and people who rage against, you know, blacks, Jews, you know, kikes, whatever they want to talk about, and how it comes from this basis of of fear. Of fear, yeah, yeah. You see it. I mean, today it just doesn't go away, does it? No. So I'm still driven by that, and I can't help that. It's in my DNA, I think. Mm. But I do, you know, I, I, I have love and still miss, you know, the kind of <laughs> the portrait work. When so, I love it when it does come in. Yeah. Are you are you and revisiting? Sorry, go on. Yes, exactly. Oh, the affinities. Yeah. Is that what you can say? So yeah. because whenever there is work that is not presenting itself to me, I will invent it, and so that's how. Again, like the film, like the feature that turned into the documentary, the old affinities became the new affinities because in the new age of digital, I kind of started looking back at the postcards and the faxes that don't exist anymore and the letters that people don't write to one another. And I looked at my phone and I looked at Facebook and I thought, gosh, I'm still friendly with Jane Horrocks. I could send her a text message. I'm on Facebook with Simon Curtis and Jane Horrocks had chosen Simon Curtis. He did my week, um, my week with Marilyn that okay. Michelle Williams won an Academy Award well, for. Well, he directed it. He directed it. Okay. Don't think he wrote it, but he directed it. And um, so I thought, okay, Jane had chosen Simon or Simon had chosen Jane, I don't remember. So I sent Jane a message and said, if you had to, this is like 18 years later or something, who would you choose now? as your affinity. And she went Serena. And then she said, oh, and you. And Simon Curtis said, I'd choose, um, Downton Abbey was huge. And he said, I'd choose Hugh Bonneville. And then he said, oh, but but hang on, I'd choose my wife, Elizabeth McGovern. And can I be in the photograph with both of them? Because we share a wife. Because Hugh Bonneville's wife in Downton Abbey is Elizabeth McGovern. And in real life, Simon Curtin's wife is... So that's how it kicked off again. Okay, so you weren't necessarily trying to photograph the same couples just 20 years later or whatever. But if they presented as the same, okay. then that was fine. And I know some you did um, Bruce Robinson and... Uh, and um, Richard E. Grant. Richard E. Grant. And I'm, I'm, I'm just being self-indulgent now because I just adore Bruce Robinson. He's like, I just think he's the business. Um, he do you, how did you reconnect with those guys? Did you, are they sort of friends almost? I, I, saw, I got some Richard E. Grant's... Um, email through a friend I think and um, he said yeah he was still consider that today he would choose Bruce Robinson wow. and we had this complete with nail and I moment because <laughs> what I introduced in the new affinities was filming them a little bit just filming and, oh, yeah, and interaction yeah. happening and I mean this film of the two of them I'm 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 at the moment trying to get an exhibition of the work but that this film of Bruce and, and Richard is just hilarious. And then, you know, I did Amir Hosempur, who I'd done with this um, woman called Nesta Winellis. And he said, oh, no, now I'd be f- photographed with Philip Glass or I'd Mm-mm. Isabelle Hubert. And through Isabelle Hubert, then I came to Sophie Carl. And um, so interesting ha- things happened. For example, she... 
she said, oh, I'd be photographed with my cat, Suri. And in fact, I think she was at the photographer's gallery. They, they, they did that photograph of her cat uh, uh, called Suri, she said, which means mouse, um, of Suri in because in, Suri died soon after I photographed her. And she said, thank you, Gillian, because you did this last photograph of me with my cat. There you go again, you see, Gillian, with this kind of <laughs> kiss of death that you've because got. James Baldwin, <laughs> Primo Levi. Oh, God. Oh, God, yeah. Um, <laughs> also, it occurs to me that, you know, some of the listeners won't necessarily know who a lot of these people are, but I just think they should look them up and work for it a little bit. Sometimes I put people's links in the show notes so that everyone can go and, you know, see. But, you know, I think most of them are pretty on it. I mean, if you don't know who Bruce Robinson is. <laughs> so the Here and There book project... How's that going with the funding then? Because haven't you been trying, like, what's the status of that? Is that going to come to fruition, do you think, one way or another? Because I imagine you will make sure that happens regardless of... Yeah, I've, um, I've felt quite, um, it's been very hard because mm. there's an impetus with crowdfunding. And I think in the first kind of five, four, four few months, you know, you get your blitz and your first real shed load of dosh. And then it stops, and then it's very hard to go yeah. back and ask people. Well, I think that's why Kickstarter put a put a time limit on it because I right. think either it happens or it does quick or it doesn't. I think, yeah, exactly. And um, so I did have a meeting with Ambar not that long ago, and they said um, we definitely want this to happen. And what I love about John Mitchinson, who's the man who runs Unbound, is that he's saying, I, you know, I make a stand for these beautiful books to happen, and they should happen. Um, as they should happen, you know. It, it, you know, but I, I've written a lot. There's a lot of narrative in this book as well. Mm. So it's that mix of photography, and, and we know that, um, and the cost. And um, w- what I will probably do is apply for an Arts Council grant yeah. and see if I can get the last bit in. Right. I'm working with Counterpoints Arts because of the refugee thing involved in the book, and I will make it happen. Yeah. It's no small amount of money. It's just the cost. I mean, I have mm. raised fifteen grand. That's yeah. I mean, which that's is a, which is a huge amount of yeah. money. I mean, so fifteen I'm, grand is sometimes the sort of you know where you need to be kind of thing. But exactly. You, and un- Unbound is interesting because so I wasn't too sure, but they they're a sort of Kickstarter and a publisher in one platform, right? Is that basically it? That that's they, right. They, they you raise the money through them, but you also publish through them as well. That's exactly okay, right. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll look forward to it. I'm sure it's going to, it will, it will see the light of day. Um, it will. So what have you learned about yourself through being a photographer? <sighs> that I'm like, a, sometimes I'm like a Rottweiler. I wish I wasn't, that I hold on to these things until they, it is that thing about being darned persistent, that you have to, you have to have the belief you have to have the commitment. You have to have the perseverance. And you have to, at all costs, believe that these things will prevail and will will out. Um, and, and, you you know, there's a lot of pushing to make them happen. Mm. I don't want to make it sound tougher than it already is, but it is true. Um, I don't think it's an easy game. Um and that also, it's that thing that sometimes understanding, and I'm deviating now, but just sometimes these projects take longer than you may think they 
ought to have been. Um, yeah, you've got to have a bit of patience sometimes, a bit of um, endurance. So it's the endurance, and I've always seen myself as incredibly impatient. But I've had to learn to, to all those kind of qualities, as well as the patience and the belief and the, to, you know, keep working. And I think the hard thing is, I think probably at the moment I'm wrestling with a little bit is that kind of concept that you've got to reinvent yourself all the time. But honestly, um, I think what I managed is a career and to keep doing important work and raising two kids alone as well as, you know, making a documentary film. And that's something that I'm, you know, and what I haven't even mentioned is right now I'm in the midst of a project for the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, which is called, although we're trying not to have the term in the title, but it's Poverty in the, in the UK. Oh, really? Mm. Um, what, so tell me a little bit about that um the joseph rowntree uh, always read the reframing the, the idea and the concept and what they're saying is we all know of the people that are homeless in the streets but what's happening now is that it's people who are having to hold on one or two or three jobs and still unable to pay their bills mm. And um, how do we show that? And the difficulty is that with that, it's not like I could pick up a camera and just go anywhere. So they hooked me up with um, with uh, somebody who wrote a book called The New Poverty with them, Stephen Armstrong. We've made contact with um, Darren, I always forget, who did the book called The Poverty Safari. Um, oh, yeah, Darren, I've heard of that. Um, who was raised in the Gorbals. And um, I wouldn't say McGowan, but... Um, it's not that, but um, he, Darren, I'm sorry, I'm having a sorry. moment where I'm... I'll check in. McGarvey. Okay. And um, it's, uh, so we're going, we're, we're going through organisations. So it's, it's a little bit like um, they're much more kind of um, constrained in that they're not, it's not street stuff. But it's a portrait project, essentially. It's a portrait project. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. What happened? And this is quite interesting, um, because they, in the beginning, they said um, we'd like you to create six pilot images, um, but we're not giving you those people. And I had gone down to Grenfell when it happened, mm. and I'd met this um, man called Micah who started the Brixton Soup Kitchen. And I, um, he had said, please come down and visit us. And so I rang him up and said, I've got this project. Could I come down and visit you? But I'd also thought I can't go up to people and say, are you, are you poor? How do you do? Right. So I decided that I would devise this. Um, I, so I asked them, what, what is the thing you could not live without? And interestingly, when I went down, and Micah was one of the first people I photographed, and I said, what is the thing you could not live without? And he didn't bat an eyelid and said my mind and so it was this idea of doing the portrait and then the something that depicted this other attribute mm. or, um, and he said my mind because when people have no money and they're hungry and they're starving the amount of mental illness that one is seeing is profound and it's true we know that so and interestingly at the same time my son said, this is going to be a very boring project because every single person is going to see, say, my mobile phone. To date, not one person has said, my phone. 
And interestingly, in a place like Hull, the answers have been very kind of abstract. Like a lot of the year, there were word poets that said things like escapism, um, favors, words. So they've been. Yeah, yeah. So it's not necessarily items, it's, it's, mm. it's ideas. Mm. That'll be interesting when that comes to light. And then I w- started off asking about this documentary, the, the Norman Wexler thing, yeah. which I guess you've been sort of funding as you go. To date, this 47, 50-minute rough cut we've done on Talking Favours, Favours and Pat Kaufman, who put off and on to $12,000. So, I mean, to have got where we got on that amount, which is very little, mm, it's um, it was pretty staggering. And we've had great DOPs and um, and one point we did some recon dramatic recon based on the script we were and i found i i went down to mallorca and f- to try and find a highway that looked like it was an american highway and we enacted a scene from the the, the script and and took some actors down and it worked and mm. so we put that into the and i you know if the funding because we've applied to sundance for finishing funds if that funding comes in then we'll i'd like to do some more some more recon as well cool. it was great fun yeah i can imagine yeah so that'll be a new string to your bow doing the uh, film stuff yeah well but we're basically done i think because i could talk to you for hours um <laughs> what uh what advice would you give looking back to your 20 year old self do you think wow. i didn't start till my mid-20s but if i said to myself then well, it could be just life, you know, mm. generally. Um, oh, God. I A lot of things. You know, I'd have... This is so kind of seems so surface, but I think in this day and age, I would have... Um, I would have branded myself better. I wouldn't... I didn't understand the concept of that and how important it is. Um, I... I may have um, also said that, yeah, there are less women in the industry and you've got to fight, fight even harder, but, but don't be put off. Just keep, keep the fight going and continually. You're as good as your last image, as one of the photo editors once said to me. Another one said to me, talk about breaking the boundaries of portraiture, Gillian, and that stuck in my head for quite a while. Um, so I think it's that thing of just, but you have to be true to yourself, really. Otherwise, it doesn't work for me. Um, um, so if you, if I just said to myself, be more, I, I think that I would have, I, I tell you what I would have done. I would have, um, I would have had much greater belief in the fact that I could have pushed on the art front in terms of the gallery, the gallery side. Because that's where it began for me, and I didn't believe in myself. I was, I, I, that is the thing I would have said. I would have said, believe, believe in yourself more and listen less to mm. people's advice. Okay, but the same question, what about your 40-year-old self? <laughs> so that's coming forward by 20 years from where we just were kind of thing. I think I'd, um, I'd give myself more credit. I'd still believe in myself more 
It's that thing, the insecurity thing, that we all, I think, have. It would be bullshit if we didn't admit it. And I'd say you did, you know, you did damn well, you know. That, that thing of managing a career and raising two kids has been pretty profound. And I'd say... Um, keep going you know and also I'd, I mean I think it's that thing of taking risks I'd maybe have taken even greater risks that's a scary thing but I think I may have Gillian thanks so much it's been great to talk to you I've really enjoyed it so much and uh, I appreciate the time you've given me thank you for it asking me it's lovely to meet you I've loved it thanks thank you Gillian. Ben